you know, I have to remain steadfast in my allegiance to Jesus, not because, you know, I'm just one moment away from being gay again, but because I know that just like my physical health, I can cultivate my life in a direction and anyone can. And so, you know, people that go back to the gay life, that's that's no more a disqualification of God's power than those in the children of Israel who wanted to go back to Egypt. All right, this is Kingdom Subjects. My name is Elijah. Uh, today I'm going to be so excited to be joined by Drew Berryessa. Drew is the founding member and director of Living Letter Minis- A Living Letter Ministries, yep. which champions conversations around healing from sexual brokenness and is dedicated to equipping the church with an understanding of how to wisely respond to issues of sexuality. Drew recently published his newest book, Are We There Yet? Mm-hmm which we'll get into, um, but it's a must read. I really enjoyed it. My wife is reading it right now. Wonderful. Um, and Drew is a graduate of Multnomah University, correct? Yep. And uh, Drew is also the husband to the love, his, love of his wife, Suzanne. Yep. Okay. And the father of three daughters. <laughs> yes. Correct. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Three a, girls. A big yes on that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are their names, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, I've got Lainey, Livy, and Bailey. Oh, that's really cute. Yep, yep. <laughs> I love Bailey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good name. She is the exclamation point on our family. Mm. I'll tell you what. That's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot. It's a lot oh, of yeah. handful, but yes. Oh, yeah. You know, she's nine <clears throat> years old going on 43. So, you know, that's <laughs> that's Bailey. Oh, yeah. yes. Tenacious, precocious, mm. all of the words. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so we, my, my wife and I have an eight-month-old awesome. son named Linus. And oh, wonderful. He is, uh, I mean, he takes after me already a little bit, mm-hmm. but he's also like way more high energy than either of us Mm. and so we're both the kind of the kind of couple that just wants to sit down and have tea and read a newspaper sure sure and he's just like he's all over the energy (laughs) that's amazing where did this thing come from (laughs) right right that's been that's been pretty wild uh also worth mentioning um forage coffee is sponsoring this podcast so i need to just mention um shout out to forage we're drinking forage right now americana with cream Mm, very good forage very good good. um they make ceaseless fun of me because i'm a big starbucks fan Mm. and whenever i go do you know storm and jake yeah yeah i've I've met them yeah Yeah. they always i walk in there and they just like roll their eyes and sometimes (laughs) i walk in there with a starbucks coffee well that's just insult right there you know (laughs) a little bit rude (laughs) i need to change my behavior on that one you might you might need to repent of that behavior (laughs) i think i do and i'm i'm not hating on starbucks i worked at starbucks for years. And, Is that right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah my whole family at, at times have worked for, you know, I lived in Portland for 18 years. Oh, so yeah. when you're mid 20s, Back in the 2000s, what you did is you worked at Starbucks. That's mm-hmm. just a rite of passage. <laughs> exactly. So, you know. Well, yes. And I've mentioned this already on the podcast, but great benefits. Oh, yeah. They take good care of you. Absolutely. They're good employers. It's a good employer, especially yeah. for that 20-something, I don't know what to do with my life sort, exactly. of, exactly. sort of place in life. Yes. I think they're great. Um, but mm-hmm. here we are with the best coffee in town, in my opinion, Forage. So, Thank you for your sponsorship, Forage. <laughs> yes. Thank you, guys. Um, so... Drew, uh, before we get into more specific questions, can you tell us a little bit about just your story, your history? Yeah. What yeah. brought you here today in front of this microphone? Well, that is, uh, yes, I can do my best to do that <laughs> yeah. as brief as possible. Um, so I, like many people, I came to know Jesus at a very early age in my life. Uh, I accepted Christ when I was about four years old, but as many in the church will know and relate to, just because you know Jesus and love Jesus mm-hmm. does not make you invulnerable to brokenness or mm-hmm. temptation or or just struggle. And as my life continued throughout my life, um, my parents experienced a very, very, very broken and nasty divorce, which left me and my brothers um, experiencing a lot of neglect and a lot of uh, deprivation, mm. um, not getting needs met that that every child needs when you have two parents in the home and a healthy family. Well, we didn't have that. And it left us vulnerable to a lot of other things like abuse and, and just mm. a real, real hardship going forward from eight years old on. Mm. And so um, right about the time I was 14, 
um, when, when my parents had divorced, they left the church. And so when I was 14, I found my way back to church mm. and began to develop a deeper relationship with Jesus that was my own, not just, you know, a young kid being brought to church by his parents. Um, but coincidentally, that was about the same time that I began recognizing my struggle with mm-hmm. same-sex attraction, or as someone might say, I, I believed I was gay. Mm-hmm. And uh, being attracted to other men and not attracted to women, that was a profoundly uh, difficult revelation for me. You know, I'd grown up, like I said, in the church in the early 80s, which is about the time that the HIV AIDS crisis began mm. to come into focus in our nation. And yeah. I heard the litany of remarks uh, about the LGBTQ community from the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people back in those in those days were saying that AIDS were God's judgment against mm-hmm. the gay community. And so, um, and also I had grown up with an uncle who was gay. And so homosexuality was not unfamiliar to me, mm-hmm. but it wasn't what I wanted for my life. Yeah. As a believer in Jesus, I wanted to follow Jesus. I wanted to eventually have a family and this was in direct conflict to that. Mm. So you add to that the cultural narrative that has been going on for decades that if you are experiencing attraction to the same sex, that means that you quote are gay. Mm. And with the the you know, the cultural rhetoric of that inborn argument of, you know, you're born that way, you can't change, you shouldn't try. Mm. Those were the things that I was dealing with as a young teenager, also trying to follow Jesus. Mm. And uh, because of that, you know, I, I wrestled through about five years of this struggle from 14 to 19 in absolute fear of anyone finding out what I was dealing with and just trying to do my best to deal with it as I, as I could, which was a lot of like memorize more scripture. Maybe that'll, you know, maybe that'll fix <laughs> it. it. Yeah. Cause you know, that has fixed all sorts of struggles for everybody throughout the, you know, millennia. Just memorize more scripture um, and, you know, tried praying and praying and praying that the Lord would take that struggle for me and and nothing happened. And and so um, I did what a lot of young believers uh, who, you know, arguably was growing up in maybe what would be considered a more legalistic performance based church. Yeah. I just tried harder and I tried harder to please God. I tried harder to earn God's uh, God's ear. That maybe if I worked harder, he would listen and maybe he would address this struggle in my life. And honestly, that that just was very fruitless. And I reached 19 years old, very frustrated and very broken and very lonely and very afraid and ultimately very vulnerable. Mm. And uh, the conclusion that I reached from years of prayer and years of memorizing scripture and years of like trying to work my way out of this struggle was that number one, either God wasn't going to listen to me because I just wasn't good enough yet, which it, you know, felt like what else could I possibly do? Or number two, God could not change this in me. You know, he just wasn't powerful enough to do it. Mm. Maybe the world was right. Maybe this isn't changeable. Or number three, maybe God just didn't care. Mm. Maybe he didn't have a problem with this. And all of those options didn't really feel right, Mm. but I wasn't really left with anything else. And so I kind of reached this position where I, in a moment of very honest prayer before the Lord, and you know, I say honest prayer, mm-hmm. it's more like, you know, a, a, a tizzy fed, <laughs> like, <laughs> right. you know, like God, I've tried and I've tried and I've begged and I've begged and you aren't listening. And mm-hmm. so, you know what, I, if I have an opportunity to be loved by someone, I'm going to take it because your love sucks mm-hmm. is the honest prayer that I had. And what I've learned since is you just don't give the enemy that much room to operate in your life and, and within two weeks of that quote, honest prayer, I met a guy at church Mm -hmm. who was new to our church. And, you know, I thought, Hey, I'll reach out to him, be his friend. Really, truly it was, I was attracted to him. Mm -hmm. And, um, within a couple of weeks of striking up a friendship with him, he confessed that he had been involved in a gay relationship Mm -hmm. and suddenly there felt like there was opportunity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I've met someone who struggled like I did who I didn't have to be afraid of being honest about what I was dealing with. And that honesty with another vulnerable person without any accountability is just a dangerous situation. And within a few weeks of that kind of me disclosing to him that I was also struggling, our relationship turned from friendship into a sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, you know, just going to be honest here that I don't think a lot of Christians are this honest, especially in talking in, in like the church or to the church, Sin really does satisfy for a season. And for several months, this relationship was everything I ever dreamed it could be. You know, it was, 
I felt known. I felt loved. I felt safe. And, you know, bonus, I was able to have sex, which was mm-hmm. pleasurable. Yeah. And, you know, it was meeting a lot of needs in me that that had not been met throughout the years because of the divorce and separation of my family and the brokenness that was there. And honestly, a lot of the needs that just could not have been met by the church because I was never honest with anybody about what I was dealing with. And as a good friend of mine, Ken Williams will often say, you can't know unconditional love until people know your condition Mm. because we're constantly disqualifying the love and the life that people will speak over us if we're holding back secrets in our life, if we're keeping secrets with the enemy, with, with the devil, we'll constantly have that voice in the back of our head of like, yeah, but if they knew, Mm. you know, if they really knew what I was dealing with, Mm -hmm. then they would not love me. Or then what they said about me couldn't possibly be true because if they knew they never would have said that. Mm -hmm. And so every bit of love and relationship that pastors and youth workers and people in my church and even my friends were trying to give me, I just completely disqualified because there was this secret I was keeping that disqualified everything. And so when I met this other guy, there was no secret. I could receive mm-hmm. the love that he gave me. And mm-hmm. so as it says in Proverbs 27, seven to him who is well fed, honey is not desirable, but to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste mm-hmm. sweet. Yes. Well said. Right. Yep. And so for that mm-hmm. season, for about four to six months, it was really, you know, for lack of a better term, life giving to me. It was, you know, a lot of, a lot of affirmation and obviously negative affirmation, but a lot of affirmation and a lot of, um, you know, lack of loneliness that I'd experienced for so long in my life. And, and it was great until it wasn't. (laughs) And, um, you know, it wasn't like he was abusive. It wasn't like there was anything necessarily on a worldly level wrong with the relationship just that I was a believer in Jesus and I had the Holy spirit in me and I began feeling very convicted by what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I would do my best to like shut out the voice of the Lord and the voice of the Holy spirit because I, I really was angry at him. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to hear it. Like I remember one moment where I was in the shower, which is always where it seems like God kind of gets my attention because there's no distractions. Mm-hmm. Also seems really rude. Like that's a private moment, Lord, like leave me alone. <laughs> uh, but I was in the shower one morning and I just remember the the Lord just gently speaking to my heart and, you know, something along the lines of like, Drew, this relationship is so good and so right. Why are you hiding it from everybody? Mm. Because I was living a double life. I wasn't willing to, to give up my relationships in the church. And I wasn't willing to give up my relationship with my boyfriend. So I was living this double life. And, you know, that, that cut through all of my self-deception of just, if I really truly believed this was the thing that God had for me, then why was I deceiving everyone else in my life and denying its existence? Mm -hmm. And my response to the Lord was, oh, now you want to (laughs) speak? Now you want to address this? I've been praying for years with silence as the response. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm actually being loved by someone you want to, mm-hmm. you want to confront me. And so I ignored him for a little bit longer and it wasn't until uh, my youth pastor and his wife very gently and not specifically confronted the fact, not that I was like in this relationship with this, this guy, but really it came along the lines of my youth pastor's wife just saying to me one day as I was leaving their home, like, Drew, you're in sin Mm. and your sin is killing you and you're not the same person we met when we moved here. She didn't specifically name the sin and I completely denied (laughs) Mm -hmm. anything, but it was just their observation that, Mm. you know, sin has an effect on us. It changes us. It Mm -hmm. changes who we are. It, it alters our heart. And so she reflected back kind of the evidence that she saw of that. Mm. And, you know, I denied it to her face, but then after leaving their home that night, got about a mile down the road and really realized I needed to address this. And so mm. went directly to my boyfriend's home, broke off the relationship, asked forgiveness. Mm. And then for two more years, just sort of hid and worked really hard to earn God's like mm-hmm. forgiveness yeah. until finally coming to a point of confessing with the same youth pastor and his wife and surrendering my sexuality to the mm. Lordship of Christ. Wow. And, you know, it's been... Gosh, I was 20 something years old back then. It's been about 25 years since then. And in 25 years, I never again had another gay relationship. And within a few months of making this disclosure, I was living in central Washington in a small town, Yakima, Washington. Mm -hmm. And within a few months of this disclosure, um, by 
the hand of God's providence, I moved to Portland, which I always say is a very strange place to send someone to recover from homosexuality. <laughs> right. But that's where the Lord sent me. And, mm-hmm. and within a few days of moving to Portland, got connected with a friend who was also a, uh, or was a student at Multnomah Bible College, my alma mater. And um, as I began sharing with him sort of my life, I, I had resolved moving to Portland. Like I wasn't going to hide what I was struggling with. If people were going to be my friends, they were going to be my friend knowing what I was dealing with. And mm-hmm. that way mm-hmm. I would never disqualify their friendship yeah. based on like this fear of rejection. Mm. And so, you know, sharing my testimony with him, like, this is what I'm dealing with. Um, this is not who I am, but it's what I'm dealing with. Um, he said, wow, thanks for sharing that with me. Like mm. I should introduce you to my friend, Jason, who runs this ministry called Portland fellowship. And their whole mission is helping disciple men and women who struggle with this. And I mean, just like, the hand of God yeah, to put me wow. directly in the path of this guy mm-hmm. who would introduce me to a ministry that then after going to it would transform my life. And then I would spend, you know, over a decade in ministry at the Portland fellowship. Mm-hmm. And so long story there, uh, I've spent 10 years in, uh, from 2004 to 2014 in ministry at this, it's a parachurch organization mm-hmm. really just designed for the discipleship of men and women struggling with their gender identity, mm-hmm. sexual orientation issues, mm-hmm. um, but also ministers to friends and families of those who have embraced an LGBT identity. And so mm-hmm. um, really had a great opportunity there, not only to um, give back the healing that the Lord gave me, but also to learn a great deal about mm-hmm. the stories of men and women who struggle yeah. and how to uh, meet them in that and help disciple them into Christ likeness. So after 10 years of service there, I began to see this shift in culture that um, the laws surrounding religious freedom and specifically on the issue of sexuality Mm -hmm. are becoming more and more restrictive. And the burden that the Lord began putting on my heart was that the church, the local body was going to be the last place someone would be able to go if they were struggling with their faith and their sexuality. Um, because currently in you know several states, therapy or or professional help for people struggling with these issues have been outlawed in Canada. You know it's illegal to help someone move towards what would be considered more heterosexual normative mm. sexuality or gender expression, yeah. punishable by two to five years in wow. prison. What do they call it again? Like con- like conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is the colloquial term. Yeah, it, I think I've know, heard that in the news. Or something. Yeah, you've you've heard it everywhere probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's been no shortage of of portrayal of this quote conversion therapy and honestly if i could take the minute to just say, clarify that conversion therapy is such a catch-all term that's not defined yeah it's only the only definition it really is helping people move from lgbtq towards not even towards like straight mm-hmm. but literally it can be classified as trying to lessen the gender expression that's non-biologically based mm. trying to lessen your sexual behavior that is either you know moved or operated towards the same sex or towards, you know, multiple sexes. Um, Really, it's just Christian discipleship. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it takes the form of in the secular world as something that was originally called reparative therapy Mm -hmm. developed by Dr. Joseph Nicolosi back in the 2000s. But honestly, it's just this blanket term that's been set up to to stigmatize and to um, villainize any attempt for someone to recover God's design in their sexuality, whether that be gender or sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. And so that may be the term, but (laughs) um, it's not always really well defined and it's portrayed all over the media badly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's a catch all for sure. It is. It is. And um, so that is what I experienced and what I began to offer is that discipleship. And then um, because the, the restrictive laws are moving tighter and tighter, I know that the last place people will be able to go is other believers who mm. know mm-hmm. how to help. Yeah. And so that's why I formed a living letter ministries to help mm. equip the church and to break through the deception, the rhetoric that's out there in culture to proclaim a gospel message that, you know, Christ can do anything with a life surrendered to him. And that includes our sexuality. It includes mm. our gender. It includes um, restoration of any brokenness. And there's no guarantee of what your life will look like other than your life will be redeemed and you'll be more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really the goal. It's not to become straight. It's to become more like Christ. Mm-hmm. So that's a nutshell. That's, that's me in a great. nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for sharing that. That's really helpful for, I'm sure for all of us in the listener to, 
to build a, a framework. Yeah. Here. So you mentioned some stuff about identity that I really like. So you mentioned um, this is not who I am, mm -hmm. but it's what I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. That's just a refreshing perspective. Right. Um, do you think that that uh, uh, do you think that that correlates to to all areas of yeah. of sin? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that there's a huge push in our culture, uh, just in this point in history to find our identity based on what we experience rather than who we are. Mm. And you can see that. I think it's a, a result of part of the postmodern movement of just the, there is no, you know, absolute truth. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also influenced highly by um, phenomenology, which is this belief of like what I experience is my truth and mm -hmm. it's the truth I move with. And so when people experience feelings or, or weaknesses or vulnerabilities and then base their identity on that, you mm -hmm. see that across a lot of spectrum of, of human experience, like mm -hmm. even, even in theology, you know, depending on which theological stream you, f you find yourself in, mm -hmm. you might either say I'm a sinner mm -hmm. who is also a saint, or you might call yourself a saint who sometimes sins. Mm -hmm. right. And, you know, what we choose to base our primary identity in really is important because mm -hmm. we live from our identity. Mm -hmm. We, we make choices based on our identity because yeah. identity becomes this fixed point of foundation. And for me, you know, this wasn't something that I had all the background information to when I began my journey of really surrendering my sexuality and identity to Jesus. But uh -huh. somehow I intuitively had this this understanding. Maybe it was from the rebuke of the Lord the one time I said, Lord, but I'm gay. And he said, mm. that's not how I see you. Mm. Um, wow. <clears throat> but it really became this tension point of like, I need to be honest about what I'm experiencing, but my experience is not who I am. Mm -hmm. It's just something I'm experiencing. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of the time, you know, even in other areas of recovery within sh in the church, you know, like take alcohol addiction mm -hmm. or alcoholism for for one example. It's one thing to say I struggle with alcoholism or that's my vulnerability. It's yeah. another thing to say I am an yeah. alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And you know, there can be recovery on both ends of like that spectrum, clearly Alcoholics Anonymous and Celebrate Recovery, all these, you know, ministries and, and programs that help people recover, they do good work. Mm -hmm. My struggle is that if you constantly believe this is who you are, mm -hmm. then you're going to leave that as an un, unchangeable place in your heart right. that the Lord can't redefine for you. Yeah. I've heard them say once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Right. Right. And so, I would, I would challenge that, but to say, we don't choose our vulnerabilities. Mm. We do choose how we steward them. Mm. And you may always be vulnerable, Yeah, but you don't have to remain fixed in an identity in that. Mm, that's a powerful distinction, the vulnerability. Right. And I think that's uh completely fair for you know we're we're all going to have vulnerabilities in some areas absolutely yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and you know it's just true neurologically that when you experience you know something powerful whether it be a trauma or whether it be a powerful medicating behavior mm -hmm. something that numbs a pain in your life that neuropath is wired yeah it's wired forever mm -hmm. and it's always an option yeah. And so, you know, someone who might have struggled with sexual addiction or alcohol addiction or drug addiction or, you know, heck, maybe you have ADHD and you mm -hmm. found dopamine in, you know, playing tons of video games. Right. That's a vulnerability you're yep. going to have. You just have the responsibility in Christ to to cultivate a better response mm -hmm. and to submit those vulnerabilities to the Lordship of Christ. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like for me. One of my vulnerabilities has been, you know, same-sex attraction. Mm -hmm. I have all the memories of everything I've done, right. all the investment of my sexual struggle. Mm -hmm. I have a history that will never go away. Mm. You know, what I choose to do with those things, whether I, you know, cultivate that direction in life or I cultivate a Christ-like direction in life, um, that's my choice. That's mm -hmm. the work God gives me to do. And, you know, for many in the church who haven't struggled with this, maybe you've seen the stories of people that have at one point in their life said, Hey, you know, God changed me. And then several years down the road, they're back in the gay identity or gay lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh, see that never, it never worked. Or, you know, the, the God can't heal or change people. And what I would say to that is, again, if we look at it through the lens, not of identity or fixed position, but vulnerability and humanity, yes. we can cultivate Mm -hmm. our life in any which direction. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it on a physical level, if you lost a bunch of weight and got in great shape, mm -hmm. that's a true transformation. Right. And then if you abandon everything that got you there, mm -hmm. you can go right back into being out of shape and fat and, you know, yeah. all of that because we are not static. 
Mm. You know, we move back and forth on a continuum of, of either, um, you know, healthy cultivation in life or, you know, submission to Jesus or unhealthy and carnal. And Mm. in one season that might look like good trajectory and another season, depending on our obedience and our faithfulness to the Lord, it can look rather destructive. Mm. And so I always say like, you know, I have to remain steadfast in my allegiance to Jesus, not because, you know, I'm just one moment away from being gay again, Mm -hmm. but because I know that just like my physical health, I can cultivate my life in a direction and anyone can. And so, you know, people that go back to the gay life, that's, that's no more a disqualification of God's power than those mm. in the children of Israel who wanted to go back to Egypt. Right. You know, it's like, it's a story as old as time. Right. So I'm curious because it does seem like, um, now I don't want to speak for the entire Christian church, but mm-hmm. it's just um, stereotyping a little bit. It seems like Christians expect a transformation, mm-hmm. a complete like rewiring. Right. When when uh, someone is homosexual or trans, right. to to change, and until they see that, they don't really believe it. Right. But in their own lives, you know, say like, oh, I struggle with anger. Right. They don't expect a complete transformation. Oh no, they'll be angry at their kids at four or five times a day and say, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, Lord, I'm following you now, and like, you know, His mercies <laughs> right. are new every morning. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you know, absolutely, mm-hmm. that's absolutely correct. Not only is there this expectation of like a light switch, Mm. but there's a complete lack of understanding of the struggle, the nature of the struggle and the consequences of it. Mm. Like, you know, you you mentioned trans, like I have a really good friend of mine whose name is Kathy Grace Duncan, and she's getting a lot of visibility these days. She spent 20 some odd years, about as much time as I have in the same ministry in Portland. And, um, you know, she lived as Keith for 12 years Mm. and she came to know Jesus as Keith. Wow about a year into being Keith. Wow. And it wasn't discovered that she was um, living as a man or a transgender individual until year 12 so or so. So people in her circles didn't even know. No. She was a junior high boys, small group leader. She was on the worship team. She was dating women in the church. In her history, she had had an abusive father who was awful and neglectful. And as a young child, she made the determination, my femininity makes me unsafe Mm. and I want to protect women. So I'll be the man that women deserve. Wow. And, you know, she lived, you know, she got to know Jesus very early into that journey as Keith. She was very convincing in her external appearance. Like you would not have known. And, and it wasn't until 12 years of the Lord slowly dismantling some of the areas in her life that were, you know, places of woundedness. Cause you know, she grew up in an abusive, neglectful, mm. very painful environment. And it mm. took the Lord a while to earn her trust, mm. especially when it came to her femininity. But when the Lord finally did bring her to that place and she surrendered her sexual identity and her gender identity to the Lordship of Christ, it took five years for her to be able to physically pass as a woman again because of the consequences of surgery and hormones and everything that she'd invested and how unfair would that be mm-hmm. from some someone in the church not understanding the struggle mm-hmm. to judge her spiritual journey because externally she doesn't look like she's where she needs to be. Mm-hmm. And, wow. you know, that happens a lot mm-hmm. to people in the struggle. Yeah, I mean, I, I experienced, I was at a speaking engagement in Seattle uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily put myself as the poster child as of the ex-gay individual. Like I don't, I'm not flamboyant. I'm dramatic, but not flamboyant. (laughs) And, you know, I was in a week long engagement at this church speaking every night, you know, 16 hours of of teaching Mm -hmm. in this church over a week. And there was this this gentleman came up to me after one of the events and we were getting ready for a question and answer time. And he goes, so you know how gay men kind of have a way that they talk and act like you've got it. (laughs) And I was like, oh, crap. Oh, no. (laughs) So I'm sitting there, you know, managing my face like, sure, sure. Uh And he goes, so can you explain why that happens? And I said, do me a favor. Ask that question so that everyone can hear the answer, like not just in between the break, but I want to address that. And so he asked the question and, you know, I just sort of shared, you know, when you grow up in a, in a culture or when you, you know, for one example, I'm more dramatic. I'm more dramatic in the way that I speak. Mm -hmm. Well, I grew up being raised mainly by very strong women Mm. who were very good communicators. And when I was developing language and speech and affect, those were my models. And then, you know, when I began involved in sort of the more gay community, uh, you you pick up mannerism and affect from people. Mm. Like when I travel and I speak, I go to the Midwest a lot. And I tell you, I come home 
And my wife is like, oh, you've definitely been in Minnesota. Because I'm like, oh, sure. You know, oh, for fun. You know, and I'm like talking like Midwestern. And she's like, you did it again, Drew. And I'm like, oh. Yep. But, um, you know, I had a mentor in this field of ministry who used to say that if you grew up in Germany, only ever knowing German language and German culture, but then moved to the United States and learned English proficiently, you mm-hmm. would probably still always speak with an accent. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with sin. It has nothing to do with anything like that. It's yeah. just that... We we have residue from our histories right. and our lives and our makeup. And he always was so snarky, like, you overlook my residue, I'll overlook yours. Because you know? <laughs> we all have it, you we know? Do. Just some is less palatable to the rest of the church than others. So. Mm, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, something you had mentioned that I feel like you touched on there is um, that sin is satisfying for a season. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of something C.S. Lewis said. I don't know what book it is, but he mentions... Um, if you're like, are you hungry? Well, there's such a thing as food. Right. Are you thirsty? There's such a thing as water. Do you have sexual attraction? There's such a thing as sex. Like all of these things, ha- you know, and so maybe in your childhood or in the childhood of people who feel like there was a deficiency of love. Yeah. Well, there's such a thing as being loved. Right. And even in the, in a way that maybe is not honoring to the Lord, Absolutely. it was, it was there and it's, it is a real thing. You know? Absolutely. And so I think it, to not disqualify that, cause it almost feels like in the Christian church, Sometimes that there's these sins that seem like heterosexual people struggle with, and then there's hmm. then there's an alien kind of thing where it's like, where does this right. where does this manifest itself? Right, and it's in the same exact places. It's like we want Absolutely. love, we want safety, affirmation, mm-hmm. um, joy, fun, mm-hmm. you know, yep. and and that can be fulfilled. In a, in a same-sex or in a non-same-sex way. Absolutely. Just as easily. Absolutely. And just depending on <clears throat> what your history and what your perceptions are, mm. you know, you'll you'll pursue whatever feels the safest or most congruent yeah. with, with where you're kind of at in the rest of your vulnerabilities. Mm. So, you know, for me, I have always been a more dramatic, more sensitive kid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my culture growing up, that wasn't really viewed as masculine. Mm-hmm. And so... If I didn't feel like I fit into the world of men, then what I began developing way, way before I ever identified a sexual struggle towards men is I moved towards what was more safe or identifiable. Mm-hmm. And that just happened to be the girls. Right. And so I became like the guy friend to all the girls. Mm-hmm. And that did not make me gay and that did not make me struggle with same-sex attraction. But what that did is to continue to set up this disparity between my ability to connect with other men and thus my own gender. Mm. And we all need to identify and know who we are. Yeah. And it's that sort of stage of development from, you know, early childhood till almost puberty where guys really just want to hang out with guys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the, the, in the old days, it would be like the clubhouse, no girls allowed, or, you know, girls have cooties Mm -hmm. or that sort of thing. (laughs) Right. Because you're not interested in identifying with the opposite. You're interested in filling up your kind of identity cup. Right. Right. And if you don't know how to do that or can't make that connection, that connection does not go away. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis also said, human hunger will be met rightly or wrongly, Mm. but it won't be denied. Yes. In the same probably paragraph that you're you're (laughs) looking at there. That's really well said. Yeah. And so it makes sense why people then move to these extreme places, whether Mm -hmm. it be, you know, homosexual relationship or in the transgender struggle that they feel to that level of of disconnection from their own gender, that Mm. that their very skin is something that needs to be altered in order to feel okay. We should have a lot more compassion Mm. about that rather than judgment. Yeah. Well, thanks for being vulnerable and sharing yeah. your story. Um, I wish I had you all day because there's all <laughs> all these things <laughs> that I want to like double click on. Absolutely. Um, like masculinity, that's something that I feel very oh, yeah. like strongly, uh, not strongly about, but uh, I'm also a, not, I don't know how to describe myself, but I'm a sense, very sensitive person. Right. I cry a lot. Right. You know, and so I always struggle with what, you know, what is masculinity? Mm-hmm. I don't really have an affinity towards um, shooting guns and right, hunting. Right, and right. I've hated sports my entire life. Right. Um, and uh, I'm not competitive, you know, and these kind of things that like, right. so where so where does this masculinity come from? Right. right. And so it's, I would love to to, to double click on that at, at some point. Yeah. You, yeah. Well, I can give you a quick little thing. Please do. Because yes. that's been one of the defining mm-hmm. struggles for me of just even after leaving homosexuality, even after getting married and being a father, mm-hmm. I still struggled with this sense of like, I'm just not a good enough man. Mm. And even in this, the enemy's such a jerk. Yeah, if I could just say that, yeah. you know, when, <laughs> yes, we, can say that. <laughs> when we had uh, our children, 
you know, we had three daughters, three girls in a row. And I honestly, I had really wanted a son at some point mm-hmm. in my life. But then when I had my third daughter, we found out the third one was a daughter. Mm-hmm. The enemy just sort of whispered, see, God doesn't trust you with a son because you're not a good enough man to, mm-hmm. to parent a son. And that really Tricky like that. Oh, yeah. Lord, he's wow. such a jerk. Yes. <laughs> and it wasn't until like. You know, my youngest daughter was I can't maybe two or three years old that I was speaking at a conference put on by Restored Hope Network, which is a ministry that I was affiliated with at the time, yeah. that um, network of ministries like ours. And um, there was another speaker that was there, uh, the late Dr. Larry Crabb, mm-hmm. and I love that guy. Mm. Like, love his his writings, a wonderful blend of theology and psychology. Mm. And uh, he had just written a book called Fully Alive, mm-hmm. and it was about the image of God in male and female yeah. and what does masculinity and femininity look like, not culturally, yeah. but spiritually and relationally. And I'd gotten his book and and right after that conference, I was on a flight to Minnesota to go, no, not Minnesota, Missouri to go speak at a church. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading this definition of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And as he comes back to kind of the, the pictorial nature of the, the words used in Genesis for male and female and how they point to the human body and God's um, propensity to speak and to teach through parable and sacrament yeah. where, you know, it's something might have a physical reality, but it points to deeper spiritual reality. And the way he was describing just masculine and feminine, not just based on the words used to describe it in Genesis, but also the function of male and female in the reproductive act. Yeah. He distilled it down not on a cultural level, but on a relational level, that masculinity reflects God's incarnational nature, Mm. that it remembers God's covenantal resolve to have him with us and steps in to engage, Mm. to move towards chaos and bring the truth of God to a situation, order to disorder, and that it carries with it God's presence and God's God's incarnational power. This really represents the mission of Jesus to come down and step into the chaos, remembering God's covenantal resolve to redeem Israel and Mm. thus all of the world as spoken, you know, from Genesis at the fall, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noah, you know, all the covenants. (laughs) But um, in contrast to that, he talked about how femininity revealed God's invitational nature that it welcomes in and it Mm. nourishes and it surrounds. And that can be really well displayed in the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the comforter, but it can also really be well displayed in just our physical bodies, how women receive men and nurture life and how men enter in and implant life. Mm. And when you look at it through those lens and Mm. and you start asking yourself as a man, am I stepping into disordered situations to bring the truth of God? And I literally was getting on a plane to fly to a church that was struggling to address these issues. Mm. I was literally stepping into a disordered situation to bring order. And I thought, I'm on this plane and go, holy crap, I'm a man. (laughs) And I, you know, said this realizing, okay, I just said that out loud (laughs) on the Southwest Airlines flight to Kansas City. And I'm like, context, everybody. Yeah. But it was. At least was, it wasn't Spirit Airlines. Right, right. <laughs> that would have been funnier. But um, it it really was a very freeing moment to realize masculinity mm-hmm. isn't about what you do; it's about why you're doing it. Like, what is what is the heart of God in us that then we go and we step in? Mm. And that's why there's so many distortions of masculinity in our culture. On one end of the spectrum, being passivity, mm. like men that don't show up, and we all know that that's true. Yeah, and. Also, then the other end of that spectrum is men who dominate and subjugate through control mm. or insecurity and fear. That is a distortion too. Yeah. You know, the God that we love steps in but doesn't force or manipulate. Yeah. And likewise with women, one set of brokenness is being closed off and, and not available. Mm. And we've all seen that. Yeah. The other is to be enmeshed and overconnected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every th- point in between. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that's a really cool. I I hadn't heard that, and it's it's really freeing. It's it's so freeing and encouraging. And yeah, yeah. Just because I think the cultural, I don't know where it comes from, but cultural masculinity is really tricky, and it's a moving target. And yeah. unfortunately, the church has often superimposed cultural ideas on top of the Bible. Yeah. And so, if you're not a person that just fits in those cultural ideals, mm-hmm. you're either viewed as less than, or you know, in one respect, or you're viewed as outright rebellious or sinning. Mm. And 
I don't think the Lord's happy with that because there are plenty of men and women that found themselves in the inclusive, welcoming community of the LGBTQ community, not because they started from a place of wanting that, but because just the way they are as men and women was not deemed acceptable Mm -hmm. within the church. And that's a shame. I want to highlight a couple um, points in your book. So in your recent book, are we there yet? Um, as you can see. Yeah, you've, it's a have, well-worn copy. Yeah, it's a well-worn copy. It's been, it was so fun to read through and just dive in. And um, it's really interesting because as, as I was reading this, so my wife's childhood best friend mm-hmm. um, just got, she had gotten engaged to another girl mm-hmm. um, a few, probably last year, I guess. And we were expecting an invitation to, to the, the wedding. wedding. Right. And and I had just read this, this mm. book and I thought, oh my gosh, Haley, you need to read this. You right, know, it's so right. like, what are we going to do? You know, how, how do we want to address this? How do we want to love your friend? Um, right. And, uh, and we, we had resolved to go to the wedding before mm-hmm. we even got the invitation. Um, and to, to kind of similarly just to, just address, hey, we're coming to show love for you. Right. Show love for your I guess wife, but, um, but this is where we stand on this issue, right? you know, and, and we just really liked that perspective. Uh, and then we got it, we got a card, I think two nights ago that said we eloped. Mm. So we're like, okay. Well, I guess that like, answer is that. Woo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're like, okay. But, um, and so it's just been anyways. So I, this book has been really helpful as we address that. And I think the Lord actually put it, you know, there, I'm sure there will be more situations. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. it, w- it was like we were ready to, we knew what we were going to do. Yeah. Um, and that was really helpful. And um, I would all maybe circle back to that in a yeah, little totally, bit. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So that's, it's been cool to have just how the Lord works. Yeah. You know, in that way. Absolutely. Um, but there, there are two highlights in this book that, that maybe aren't connected in your mind, but they, they were connected for me. And there were turning points within uh, the church. Right. There was the potluck. Yeah. Uh, where you guys were pretty much rejected, rejected by mm-hmm. the church. And then there's the youth pastor and his wife Yeah, where you, and, oh, and then there's another one where you're walking out of a Christmas service Yeah, and someone t- t- touches your back. And yeah, so, um, I, w- I was wondering if you could highlight just for, for the listeners and for the, this yes. is mostly a Christian listening right. podcast. Right. What are those moments and how can we be the better yes. as opposed to the potluck? Ones? Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so we'll start with the potluck. Oh Lord. I don't know how, if some of you may be old Christians, like been around the church for a number of decades. And so hearken back to a time of the church potluck, you know, <laughs> that, which I'm sure there were so many food safety violations on every one of those potlucks, yes. but um, I'm seeing pink jello. Oh, pink jello. I remember an apple pie that had cheddar cheese <laughs> on top of yes. it, which I don't even know about that. But <laughs> um, and all types of macaroni salad. Absolutely. Um, mayonnaise based. Yeah. yeah, food. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we were invited when my when my parents were just at the very beginning of the divorce. Um, my parents, I always say this when I go speak in places that they didn't have the good common sense to leave the church first to get divorced. Mm. This was back in the eighties in a small town in a very legalistic kind of environment. And not that I'm pro divorce at all. Mm -hmm. I think divorce is, is heartbreaking and never God's will. Um, ultimately, um, but that's, you know, (laughs) there's much we could unpack there. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, my parents were divorcing and, Uh, My mom was advised by the senior pastor of our church to bring the boys, bring my brothers and I to this potluck, you know, a good night out from escape our troubles, you know, as if tater tot casserole can do that. (laughs) But um, when we showed up to this cafeteria, it was held in the junior high cafeteria of our, of our town. Yeah. Um, We made our way to try to find a place to sit. And, you know, this is the church that I grew up in. This is the church that taught me that Jesus loved me. This is, Mm. this was my community. And as my mom was walking us towards one table where we knew some people, um, they started spreading out at the table so that there was no room for us. And it was super confusing. Mm. And my mom just was caught a little off guard. And so she kind of moved to try to go to another table. And the same thing happened. And it happened over and over again to where nobody would let us sit at their tables. And it was silent and clear. And as she made kind of led us to a table on the outskirts that no one was sitting at, we just sat there and my mom was weeping and the, our us boys were just in stunned shock. 
And after maybe 10 or 15 minutes, the senior pastor came up and kind of leaned into my mom and, and, um, I could hear his words to her and it was, you know, Barbara, I think that you need to leave because you're making some people upset. And, (laughs) you know, I have a lot of things I could (laughs) say about that. Um, But what I will tell you is that in my heart, what that communicated to my eight-year-old heart Mm. was, and I couldn't have articulated it back then, but the enemy sure exploited it. And I could articulate it now is that that sort of lie of don't tell the truth about your struggles or your sins or your brokenness in church because you'll get rejected. Mm. And church became very unsafe. And so my mom... um, pulled us out of there and left and never went back to church. And and my older brother has never gone back to church. My twin brother did for a while. Um, That's a whole other story. Mm. But it took me, you know, until I was 14 to come back. And uh, that was just a very profound experience of rejection uh, for even a sin that wasn't mine. Mm. You know, and, and, you know, it's like I had no part in my parents' marriage dissolving and even if my mom was 100% to blame and even if the people in the church had some knowledge I didn't have about this the collateral damage was so profound Mm. Um, that rejection was so profound Mm. Um, so skip forward to the story of the Christmas service Mm. so as a teenager I'm going to church on my own no family with me and you know it was a Christmas Eve service so I was there enjoying the Christmas Eve service. And, and, um, the senior pastor towards the end of the service did, you know, made a decision that I think was probably very reasonable in his mind. It was a family service. And he, you know, at our church, the youth all often sat together in one section of the church and, mm-hmm, you know, right. so he said, you know, Hey, we're going to have a time of family prayer. So youth, why don't you move towards and go to your parents and we can have this time of family prayer. Mm-hmm. And as I'm sitting there watching all of my friends scatter and I realize I have no family. I have no parents in this church. I am spiritually an orphan. Mm. I'm just sitting there and I felt exposed and I felt ashamed and I felt, you know, just an intense desire to get the heck out of there. Yeah. And so wow. I got up and I just let, you know, try to control my face. Like, don't break down, don't, <laughs> you know, just get out the back, the doors of the sanctuary. And mm. once I got out the doors of the sanctuary, there was about a you know, 30 yard dash from the doors of the sanctuary through the foyer to the doors to the parking lot where I thought if I could just get to the parking lot, then I can break down. I can get in my car. I can throw up. I can do whatever I need to do and I can get out of here. So I, as a like 70 year old young man, I just start sprinting Mm. to those doors and I don't know how it happened, but I was almost to the door and I, hand grabbed like my collar hmm. and it was almost like cartoonish of like your feet going in the air. Yeah. And and I turned around and it was this woman, Kathy Stevenson, and she was maybe five, one in her f- early fifties. Hmm. <laughs> like there's, there's no godly way, like only maybe a godly way that she beat me from the door to the sanctuary yeah. to the door. She had a mission. She had a mission. Yeah. She was Elijah running, you know, to, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, it's that's incredible. the only explanation yeah. in my head, but she grabbed me by the collar. And, and as I turned around, now this woman, Kathy Stevenson, her and her husband, Jean, mom, Pa Stevenson, they were, they were, uh, volunteers in the youth group. They were like the parents to everyone. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, endless evenings at their home in youth group where they would make seven layer dip and 30 to 40 (laughs) teenagers would crowd into their absolutely tiny kitchen, you know, and just hours of just being loved on by this, by this family. And as I turn around and I'm just, you know, sobbing, Mm. I looked at her face and she was crying Mm. and she looked me dead in the eye. She said, where are you going? Mm. And I looked at her and I said, I have no family. And she said, yes, you do. Wow. And she dragged me back into the sanctuary to where Jean and my friends, her children, Sean and Julie were. And then like five or six other, you know, misfit toys who had no other family. Right. <laughs> but they had just, of course, brought in the Stevenson family. And, mm-hmm. you know, they demonstrated for me a level of hospitality and love mm-hmm. that was so healing mm-hmm. and so powerful. And honestly, has become a model for how my wife and I live mm. our lives. And, you know, the Stevensons have been people that time has not separated the love for them or their love for me. Mm. And they have shown up to things in my life that I had no idea they were even aware of mm. just to demonstrate their love for me. Wow. And um, that remains true 25 years later. 
So that's so powerful. Yeah. That's so, incredible. <laughs> so incredible. And, you know, just people that didn't know the nature of what I was struggling with, but they knew that I was hurting. And quite honestly, every struggle that we have is relational anyway. Mm-hmm. We're relational beings. Most yeah. of the sins and the, the wounds that we carry are relational. Mm-hmm. If they're relational in their origin, they're going to be healed relationally. And they did a lot to heal wow, me. I like that. They're relational in their origin. They're going to be healed relationally. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How, so how, how can... Um, the church emulate how can we be a, a Kathy mm. and, yeah. and not be a, a, a potluck disaster right. you know especially in light of LGBTQ right. I just read a stat that was from 2020 mm-hmm. that um, I think it was 10% of of youth 13 to 17 are now identifying as that category it's much higher now is it it's now uh, in generation Z it's around 30% identify in the LGBTQ spectrum. Mm. And a lot of that is in the transgender um, identity. Okay. And that has gone up. There's a statistic out of England a couple years back. That's gone up 4,000% in the last 10 years and is only climbing. And so, I mean, that we have to understand that the breakdown of our sense of identity in gender Mm -hmm. and sexuality has been so profound over the Mm -hmm. last 10 years um, that that statistic will only increase. Until yeah. until something changes, so this is a reality it for is. us now. There's no denying it. No, and for the Christian church, for any church, right? There is going to be. This is a huge, huge thing. Absolutely. And so, in light of those statistics, what? How do we? You know, how do yeah. we be a Kathy? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know I, if that's a good question or no. Not, it's but. a it's a perfect question, and it's mm. one of the it's one of the things that uh, become a hallmark of what I teach when I go. I have mm. a whole teaching I do on biblical hospitality and what that looks like. And, um, you know, one of my favorite, um, I would say, uh, what's the word? Colleagues in ministry. I don't know her personally, but I I very much admire her as a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Mm-hmm. And she's written a couple of different books. She was a militant lesbian woman who was a, a professor at Syracuse University, English professor and and like the, the LGBTQ advisor for the university years ago, wow. ended up getting saved um, profoundly. And you can read her story in her first book, uh, Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. Mm, and it's a good title. It's a great, she's, a, <laughs> she's an incredible communicator. That's good. And, um, you know, she tells the story of how um, she was she was just uh, invited into conversation about the Bible as literature by a local pastor mm. and his wife who connected with her because she wrote a letter to the editor in their paper, basically what she called her war on stupid when promise keepers were coming into town. Mm. So as an angry lesbian, <laughs> she was going to tell everybody how right. this, so stupid this was. And then she gets this letter from this pastor, which she half expected to be like attacking her or right. or rebuking her. And instead, it was an invitation to come to dinner and discuss the impact. Way to go. Right. <laughs> like the impact of the Bible as literature and wow. as an English professor and a literature professor, mm-hmm. he just wanted to engage the conversation. And she tried to dismiss the the invitation. She wadded it up and threw it away, but something would not allow her to completely dismiss it. So finally she said, well, fine. They want to invite me. I'll go. Uh-huh. And, you know, went to their house for an <laughs> evening a dinner and discussion. And she said, you know, they made two mistakes that Christians should never make. And she was saying this mm-hmm. sarcastically. She yeah. said, they did not invite me to church and they did not try to, you know, introduce me to Jesus. Wow. And she said, and that made it safe for me to go back. Wow. And so in the course of their friendship that developed over meals at a table, mm-hmm. not only did she recognize that she was not taking seriously this books, the Bible, impact on the world and as a literature professor that was a grievous error so she decided she would read the bible mm-hmm. and so she read it multiple times and then she decided well i've developed this friendship with this pastor and his wife i might as well go see what their church is like right. so she started going to their church and she said well i'm not going to be here and not sing the hymns so she started singing the hymns <laughs> and it was you know she was a partnered lesbian woman mm-hmm. you know and if one day i love how she puts it she goes I was singing the songs when it struck me that I actually believed the words. Wow. Oh. And it was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, and, and that led to a profound change in her life. She's now wow. a pastor's wife herself and a homeschool mom with a bunch of adopted kids. Mm. And, and 
you know, they she's then since written a couple books, one called Openness Unhindered, mm-hmm. and then another one called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Mm-hmm. And really Love her that. main focus is hospitality. Yeah. Like what does it look like to to invite people in and develop relationship? Because like I said, relational wounds are only healed in relationship. It's one of the reasons why Jesus himself said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That's a relational mm-hmm. commandment. Yeah, yeah. That's not behavioral. That's that's our wounds between the, God the Father and us have to be healed in relationship with him. Mm-hmm. We, you know, Christ died to prepare or rather to open that way of relationship again, to yeah. reconcile us to the Father so that we could be in relationship with him. And then it says, love, one and, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah which is also relational in nature. And then Jesus said, the last thing he gave us, love each other as I've loved you. And so when we move into relationship with with other people, we have to do so being very clear about who we are and what we believe, because a lack of clarity is really unkind, Mm -hmm. but we do so knowing that we're stepping into relationship with people that may not believe like we believe. They may have lives that we're uncomfortable with and that's okay. Yeah. But they'll never know the God that loves them and wants relationship with them unless we're willing to step into that mm. and be the hands and feet of Jesus. And yeah. sometimes that comes by having a dinner invitation or, yeah. you know, being willing just to be uncomfortable. Mm. So one of the highest values I think that we can really understand as believers is, and it and it goes right in the face of the individualism and the self-protectiveness of our culture, mm. that we need to open up our lives to people. Mm. And yeah, there's risk with that and there's risk of heartache and there's risk of, of, um, of a lot of, <laughs> there's lots of risks, mm. but the risks do not outweigh the commandment. Mm. Well said. Yeah. So that's one mm. way we can be a Kathy. Yeah. I love that. What risks do not outweigh commandment? Um, it's just so interesting cause I, I grew up in a Christian church, mm-hmm. um, Christian, amazing Christian family. Uh, but, and I had many biblical, I should say biblical mentors, Mm -hmm. um, in my life, but there was one, uh, gentleman and his wife that impacted me the most Mm -hmm. and, or uh, actually two, but one I'll highlight. Um, and he almost never talked to me about the Bible or scripture, but me and my brother had like, like a house key. Basically he said, you can come anytime. Yep. My fridge is always open. Yep. And he would we would come over and sometimes we would just play a video game together. Right. And he just, him and his wife would let, let us into their house. And he knew that, you know, we were 14 and all we wanted to do is play video games. Right. But we did that with someone who loved the Lord mm-hmm. and, uh, the hospitality has still like, sometimes it just comes back to me and it might tears well up in my eyes. Cause I think yeah. that's such a, such a gift, such a sacrifice, you know, it's right. not easy now that I'm paying for my own groceries, I know if I had 14 year olds here just eating my stuff, that, oh, yeah. would, that would be a lot. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I recognize, wow, that was a, I was a burden probably quote unquote on, on their household. But to him it was, I don't, I don't even know how. There was a cost to it. Yes. There was a cost yeah, to it. There and, always is. There's, it, yeah. That was the, and that was the, the relationship that sticks out to me the most because this gentleman, he wasn't a pastor. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, uh, really involved in ministry in any specific way other than just loving on some of the younger guys in our church yeah. and just having us over and giving us food. Yeah. And it was just honestly life-changing. So I, I love yeah. that. Well, if you think about how the gift of attention, mm-hmm. the gift of, of time spent, you know, if you're familiar with like the love languages, we all know, you know, if you've been in Christian culture for any amount of time, right. we've all heard the love languages, <laughs> you know, you know, physical touch, words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service. Yeah. Oh, what's the other one? Uh, acts of service, time spent, quality time. Words, yeah. yeah. The universal love language for children is play. Hmm. And it's like they will feel loved if you get down on their level and join them in what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and we're all kids. You know, we're all in one respect or another, and especially if there's areas in our life where we have not been loved well, mm-hmm. you know, psychologists might call that arrested development or delayed develop or mm-hmm. you know, something along those lines. But truly, it's a need that's not been met. And so we can and do do well with the Lord's guiding if we will just join people in things that they value and spend the time and attention. You know, it's so many times the most profound ministry moments I've had have not been like teaching 
people or, or, you know, leading a Bible study or leading worship. It's been, Mm. you know, recognizing what's important to an individual and stepping into that reality and using that as a platform to communicate God's love or his heart. Uh, One example that comes to mind, I might even be in the book. I can't even remember if I Mm. put it in the book. It was a friend of mine who was really struggling to know God's heart. Mm -hmm. Like he knew all the theology. He knew, you know, so many different things. He's very logical minded person, which is of course made sense that he was having a hard time connecting with God's heart. And so we were in a counseling appointment and I thought this is going nowhere. So let's go grab coffee. Uh Number one, coffee is always a good idea. (laughs) Thank you forage. (laughs) And, um, also, it was a rare day in Portland where it was sunny and in the fall. Mm-hmm. Like, you, it does not <laughs> yeah, happen. It doesn't happen. No. no. Like, so we we were, there was a coffee shop not far away. Is that the setting here? Is this west side or east side? East side. Okay. Yeah, southeast Portland, okay. about 20th Avenue, Hawthorne District. Oh, yeah. So Perfect the, place to be. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the coffee shop that I took this guy to, if you've ever read the book by Donald Miller, Blue Like Jazz. Oh, yeah. It was where he wrote Blue Like Jazz. No way. Yes, sir. So <laughs> place my wife and I went on our first date. It's called, uh, it's Palio's in Lad's Edition. Mm-hmm. Beautiful walk. Yeah. Oh, so wow. the Portland Fellowship where I administered, it was off of t- yeah, that area, off of Hawthorne, right off, around 20th, yeah, Which 19. is now the cool spot of oh, Portland. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's spot. Yeah. I would argue it's always been the cool spot of Portland. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> You're a hipster. I am. At heart. Uh, so... We were walking mm-hmm. down the streets, and there's these massive maple trees that line the the the, the streets to go into this coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's the fall, so they're all gold and red and yellow, and the sun is hitting it, and the blue skies were the contrast of the colors were freaking amazing. Yeah. And so I'm walking with him, and I go, "Hey, bud, why do the leaves turn color?" Mm. And you know, he sat there for a second thinking about it, and he's a very science-minded, logical guy. He's like, "Well." Mm-hmm. With deciduous trees, you know, the chlorophyll <laughs> is drawn from the leaves into the branches and it acts, you know, to nourish the trees through the winter and also acts as an antifreeze and blah, blah, blah. He's giving me a big scientific <laughs> answer, which I knew, but, yeah. you know, and I don't even know if it's necessarily true, but whatever, it worked <laughs> yeah. in the moment. And so he said, well, Drew, that's why the leaves turn color. And I said, great. Why is it beautiful? Mm. And he sat there for a second and he just stopped in his in his tracks and he was looking at the trees. And I could tell that it just took him so off guard. And I'm like, well, why is it beautiful? Mm. And he sat there and he's like, I don't know. I said, you know, humans are the, I believe to my knowledge, the only creature that can appreciate aesthetic beauty. You know, we, we see it and it moves our, our spirits. Yeah. I would, you know, God could have made this so that they turn gray Mm. or they turn black, but he did this beautiful array of colors Mm. And he did it so that we could see it and appreciate it. And he did that because he loves us. And this guy just started weeping Mm. and he was able to. It's the heart. The heart, you know, (laughs) and it's like, you know, I knew that there wasn't, I couldn't, I could read all the scriptures on God's love for him and he knew them intellectually. He needed a way to connect with that, that spoke to him. Mm. And so often when we're ministering to people, you know, we need to be able to do that. That's, you know, one of the things that I tell parents when, especially dads, when they're they're struggling to connect with their, maybe their sons or, or their daughters and they don't know, you know, particularly with sons are like, well, but I like sports and he doesn't like any of that. I'm like, okay, well, love the kid you have, not the one you wish you had. Mm. Learn what that kid loves. And you don't have to be great at it, but at least learn the appreciation yeah. or why they appreciate it and try to develop a common language because mm-hmm. that bridge of, of relatability and, and really relationship is what allows us the ability to speak life and identity into people. And so wow. whatever we have to do, you know, God gives us so much permission. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus ministered so differently to so many different people. The truth didn't change, but his methodology did depending yeah. on the person. Yeah. Well said. So. It reminds me of, um, I read this this Catholic theologian named Peter Kreeft. Yeah, I love him. Yeah, you know him? Yeah. Oh, Peter is oh, so great. So good. He's brilliant. Oh, he is. He, yeah, he's he's making he's making us look bad sometimes. But. Oh, there are a couple of Catholic theologians that do. Yeah. Uh, Christopher West is another one. Christopher uh, West. So good. Oh, man. Man. Well, he talks about how you can't argue with beauty. You can mm. argue with a lot of things. Yep. You could argue against probably the scientific totally. definition that your friend gave you. Maybe mm-hmm. you had a, a, a one-up card. Well, actually, right. you know, the 
I don't know anything about science, so I, I'm not going to try to pretend. I think it was Francis Bacon who said that science dies uh, or is reborn one funeral at a time, meaning mm-hmm. you keep finding new discoveries. Yes. And so you can't really like base you, it's it's indefensible at times because it's just the known knowledge. Uh-huh. There's always more. Yes. You know, but beauty. Oh, (laughs) come on. And so he he converted to Catholicism after um, his dad was he grew up Protestant. His Mm -hmm. dad was took him to Ireland Mm -hmm. and they went to like a cathedral was probably like St. Patrick's or something. Right. Right. And he goes, well, dad, where are we? He goes, we're in a Catholic cathedral. He goes, but the Catholics are wrong. Right. And the dad goes, yes, they're very wrong. And then he said, but why is their cathedral so beautiful? Come on, <laughs> and the the dad Come didn't on. he couldn't answer right, and because you can't you can't argue with it. This this right. was a monument to Jesus, mm-hmm. and it was beautiful, just beautiful, yeah, right, and and just better mm-hmm. than than a a little utilitarian you know <laughs> sanctuary that we have these days. Exactly yep. with the green carpet, and, yep. and so on. And that example just oh, just blows my mind because, like, I love that with with the story with the leaves. Mm-hmm. It's just um, there's there's just nothing against it. It's just and it's and it's for us. It's a gift yeah. that God has created. We don't know why. We don't deserve it. But right. Wow. Yeah. That's. <laughs> I good. love that. I love that too. Um, can we take a quick break? How are you doing on time? I'm great. Okay. Mm-hmm.